James chapter 5, verse 11. Don't go there. Let me quote it here. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. Uh, James captures the primary quality that Job displays as he goes through his trial. Job is showing undeniable patience. Last week we saw that patience demonstrated as Job began to respond to uh, the verbal attacks of his friends, each of his friends, particularly that one friend uh, that went after him. In spite of the desperation we hear in his words, Job has been patient through this entire trial. Uh, Job has wanted to uh, die, but he's never talked about killing himself. He uh, continually seeks answers from God, asking that God would simply reveal his plan to him in this trial that he faces. But God has chosen at this point not to respond to that. Now, there is a plan, but God simply has not chosen yet to reveal that plan to him. And in fact, never does. Job never knows the plan behind it. So even in the face of this brutal attack that Job has received from his friends, his faith still stands. What you know, a remarkable thing. Job is a wonderful model to us of how we ought to handle adversity when it comes our way. And as we continue to study this book, we're going to see Job continue to stand in spite of this consistent onslaught of Satan through all different means that he puts upon Job. Now, this morning, our study is really in two parts. We're going to look at chapter 10 as Job continues his response that he began in chapter 9. And then once he's finished, the third of Job's friends, Zophar, is going to respond and continue the pressure that the other three have already put upon him in their responses to him. So beginning this morning, let's look at chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Here you see the anxiety of Job's dilemma. The anxiety of Job's dilemma. Look at those verses, if you would. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Show me thy Show me that wherefore thou contendest with me. It is, it is a good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, that thou shouldst despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked. Now, Job is at the end of his rope here. He can't stop this flood of anguish that's sweeping over his soul and that overflows his overburdened heart. Now, how could he speak of the bitterness of his soul? How could he cease to speak of the bitterness of his soul? So what he's doing here, he is re- rehearsing what he would say to God if he had the chance to do it. And really, in those three verses, Job is doing nothing more than asking God to show him what in the world is happening in my life. That's all he's asking. Job simply wants understanding regarding the trial that has come to him. Now, folks, that is a biblically valid request to make. Uh, We have familiar words for us in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. God extends this invitation. He says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Notice that God says, I want to reason with you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God is not bothered and God is not offended if we ask him for understanding when things are going on in our lives or in the lives of others that we simply don't understand and aren't clear to us. And I believe God will reveal to us what what we need to know when the time is right for us to know it. Now, what I have found, I'm sure you have found as well, most of the time, I want more information from God than he's willing to give me. But because he's all-knowing, he gives us just what we need to know, just when we need to know it, and he must, we must allow that to be sufficient for us until we see him. I want you to take note, though, of Job's bitterness. It is drawing him dangerously close to the line here. Job is the work of God's hands. He's complaining that he's being despised by God and being oppressed by his friends. Uh, he's getting close to the line of becoming bitter in the midst of his trial. David faced a trial as well. Listen how he responded in Psalm 138.8. David said, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Now, I want you to hear again what David says here. In the middle of that thing, he says, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. 
David appealed in the midst of his trial to God's mercy. And he asked God to complete the work in him that had begun even as the trial went on. I believe there is always a potential for us to become bitter in the midst of our trial, especially if it drags on for any length of time. And when we find that occurring, when that bitterness begins to rise up in us uh, we must, and begins to overtake us as that trial goes on, the place to look in that, mercy, in that bitterness is to God's mercy. Look for God's mercy. It is there. Realize God knows what you can bear. We are the work of his hands, and so he knows our limitations. We must be convinced that we serve a merciful God, and that mercy is shown to us even in the midst of the trial. The mercy is there. And instead of reacting in our own bitterness, we must instead rest in God's endless, eternal mercy. Rest there instead. And Job must have realized that as he was pouring out his soul. Because in verses 4 through 22, we see him retreat from this bitterness, and instead he begins to appeal to what? Appeal to God's mercy. We see Job asking questions in verses 4 through 10, Job's questions. Job begins a, begins a series of questions for God. And after nine chapters, we finally find Job praying. He's finally talking to God specifically about this. Look at verse 4. It says, Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as man seeth? Are thy days as the days of man? Are thy years as man's days? That thou inquirest after my iniquity and searchest after my sin. Job says this, God, you could not possibly understand what I'm going through. Because God, you are not a man. How could God possibly understand the sufferings of the flesh having never been flesh himself? Now that is Job's comment. That is Job's stand. We talked about this last week, however. For those of us on this side of the cross, we have a whole different understanding of this thing. I love the verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. God manifests in the flesh. What was not true for Job is true for us today. God became flesh. God walked this earth as a man. God understands exactly what it is we're going through. And that is because God experienced it all himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, listen to me. Everything that God has done for us is due to the fact that God became flesh. That is foundational to everything else God did. It provided for our salvation. It provides for everything that we need between here and eternity. And that's why Paul calls it, calls it the mystery of godliness. We can't understand how it happened. What we do know is God became flesh. Look at verse 7. Again, look, he says, Oh, remember that my life is wind. Remember, mine eyes shall no more see. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me go back to 7. Steve, see how that works? Uh, verse 7, Thou knowest that I am not wicked, and there is none that can deliver out of thine hand. Thine hands have made me and fashioned me together round about, yet thou dost destroy me. Job knows, and Job knows that God knows that he's not wicked in that sense. He also is aware that he is the work of God's hands, that God made him, and God fashioned him. So here is Job's question. And I love the, the humanity of this, the, the realness of this. Job says, Lord, if you know that I'm not evil, if I'm truly your workmanship, why are you taking my life apart? If you know that I'm not wicked and I'm your workmanship, why are you destroying me? Job also knows that if he were truly wicked, there'd be no way that he could ever hide from the judgment of God for his sin about that sin. And the truth is, folks, if we don't judge our sin, if we don't confess and forsake our sin, God will judge it. 
There's two choices. Either I judge it or God judges it. If I don't deal with my sin myself, then I'm inviting God to deal with my sin for me. And when God deals with my sin, his judgment is sure and his judgment is complete. It is a complete package when he does it. Because we belong to him, he has the right, please hear me, he has the right to add anything into my life that he wants to add into it and remove anything from my life that he doesn't want in my life. He can take that from me. God has the right to do all of that because I am his child. I am his workmanship. And if God needs to judge me by putting something in my life or taking something from my life, God has every right to do that. If I don't address my sin myself, God will address it in the best way that he sees fit. And it's always the right way when he does it. Look at verse 9. Job says, remember, he's talking to God. Now, remember, I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay and wilt thou bring me into dust again. Now, the answer to that question, at the end of that question, wilt thou bring me to dust again? The answer to that question is what? Yes, he will. <laughs> yes, he will. If life follows its normal course, every person born, every person in this room is going to end up as dust. The only thing we don't know is the when and the why as far as how that will happen. But scripture is clear in telling us that all people came from dust and all people were returned to dust. And no matter how many things we acquire here, no matter how much we may achieve, eventually every material thing on this earth that we possess was going to return to the dust in the same way that we do. It all becomes dust eventually. All of it. That's why laying up treasure in heaven is, makes much more sense than investing in anything in the earth here. Because anything that has a source in the earth here will at some point in time return to the dust. Look at verse 10. Hast thou not poured me out as milk and curdled me like cheese? Job is being as clear as he possibly can with God. Here's how I feel. My life is being poured out like milk and my life is like cheese that is curdled. And again, Job has no clue whatsoever why his life has occurred in this way. All that he can do is endure it as he watches his life get poured out and spoil before his very eyes. And with all those questions asked, and of course getting no answer to any of them, Job now presents his case to God. Beginning in verse 11, down through verse 22, Job emphasizes that he is the result of the work that God has done. Look at verse 11. Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh. Thou hast fenced me with bones and sinews. Thou hast granted me life and favor, and thy visitation hath preserved my spirit. And these things hast thou hid in thine heart. I know that this is with thee. Job points to his skin and flesh, his soul, his body rather. He points to his life and favor, uh, his soul and his spirit, and he realizes all those things came from God. And because God originated all those things, God knows that he could never get away with sin in his own life. He could never get away with that. And there is no sin in his life. And if there is no sin in his life, and God knows that there isn't, Job's question is, why do you allow this grief to continue? Why is this happening? The only thought I have, Job says, I must have sinned, but there's no sin there. Why is this happening in my life? And there is the source of Job's confusion. Now, I want to make a point to you this morning, folks, that I think is very, very important in this day and age. Confusion is never from God. Confusion is never from God. 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is not the author of confusion. God is the author of peace. And therefore, anytime confusion exists, there is no peace. And if we know from Romans 16.13 that God is the God of peace, we know that confusion does not come from God. 
It's not from him. It does not have him as his source. And that means if there is confusion in our lives, we must immediately be suspicious of the devil's involvement. Job's confusion is an indication that he is being pursued not by God. He's being pursued by the devil. And we know that to be the case because God gave the devil permission back in verse 2 to do what he, or chapter 2 to do what he wanted to do. We must be very aware of the same thing, folks. When you are confused, when you don't understand what's happening or what direction to take or why things are happening as they are, realize the devil is attempting to confuse you. When you watch this world go on around you and none of it makes sense, realize the devil is trying everything he possibly can to knock you off your foundation. That's what he's trying to do. And he's doing a good job with many believers in doing that very thing. So he says, I'm confused. I don't get it. Realize in those words, the devil has involved himself. And now he wants us, what he wants Job to do is what he wants us to do. He wants us to question God and turn our backs on him on the work he wants to do in our lives. If you are confused, you have no use to God. And Satan knows that. That's why you've got a book that keeps you from being confused if we get into it and read what the word of God says. So you see, the sooner we recognize that that is what's happening in our lives, that there's confusion there, the quicker we will thwart the devil's plan and get back to the foundation God has given to us. Look at verse 18. Here's the, Job now says, Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are, my days, are not my days few? Cease then, and let me alone, that I may take comfort a little. Before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land of darkness, as darkness itself, and of the shadow of death, without any order, and where there, when the light is, as darkness. What's Job asking? <laughs> God, why was I ever born? Why did you even bring me onto this earth? If this is all you had for me, why put me here in the first place? And he gets no answer to that question, of course. And therefore, he makes his final request to God. He simply asks God to let up a little and give him a little relief from the pain he's going through. Now, again, that is a reasonable request. I'm sure we've all asked for that at one point in time or another, during, especially during times of intense suffering. Look at verses 21 and 22 again. He says, before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land of darkness, as darkness itself, and of the shadow of death, without any order, and where the light is as darkness. Now, notice those words. Those words go beyond Job's suffering. Those, Job, those words describe something else. Uh, that describes for us what hell is all about, what hell looks like. That is a description of hell. Hell is described in many places in the Scripture as a place of darkness. Uh, Psalm forty-nine, nineteen describes hell as a place where the wicked shall never see light, shall never see light. Hell is also a place of absolute heat, and we're told that the hottest flames are flames that give off no light. So what is hell? Hell is a place of absolute heat and absolute darkness. And I want to remind you something this morning, folks. I realize it might be not on our minds. It needs to be on our minds. People wind up in that place every day, every day. Every second people die, and a vast number of those people are headed to the lake of fire. That means every person in this room this morning, every person listening to my voice today knows somebody or across paths with somebody who is heading to that awful place, that place of absolute heat and absolute darkness. And there's only one thing required of us. 
We are required to warn them, as Jude says in Jude 23, pulling them out of the fire. That's our responsibility. Please hear me. We are not responsible for the decision that they make. We are responsible to let them know that there is a choice to be made, a choice that has eternal consequences and a choice that must be made on this side of the grave. I know churches teach there's a second chance after you die. Folks, that is a lie. There's nothing in Scripture about that. When death occurs, it's done, it's over, the decision has been made, and you wind up in one place or the other. So what is chapter 10 telling us? What is chapter 10 giving us? It is Job crying out in anguish of his soul, seeking answers from God. And he finds no answers. Asking and asking and asking, and nothing comes back to him. He is in the depths of despair, has no one to help him or to guide him, nobody to even answer his questions. Have you been there? (laughs) Have you been there? I'm sure there are times when every person in this room has felt the same way. I want to remind you of something that the advantage we have that Job never had. We've got a book, a book before you this morning, and that book reveals to us the very mind of God. What that book gives you, maybe not in specifics all the time, although sometimes it does, what that book gives you, at least in generalities, is God's thoughts and God's plan. And you may not find specific answers to your trial as you get into the Word of God. What you are going to find in the Word of God is the assurance that God is always in charge. He's got a plan. He does all things well, and He will do things in your life well. Folks, let me tell you something. For a believer, there is hope in the midst of despair. I don't know what you're going through this morning, what despair you're feeling. Let me tell you, there is hope in the midst of that despair. There's hope there. And for the believer, that is what we cling to. That is what we hold on to. If Job could remain patient in the midst of his ordeal without a book, how much more should we be able to remain patient when God has given us his comfort in written form? That book is a book of comfort to a believer. Our patience in the midst of our trial is probably one of the greatest testimonies we can give a lost world about the difference Jesus Christ makes. The world needs to see you as patient in the midst of difficulty. And I realize, folks, this world... I'm going to fall over something here. Let me move this other way. It's restricting me here. I've got to move. This world gives you all kinds of reasons to be impatient. All kinds of reasons to be confused about life. That book solves all of it. And again, whatever you're going through this morning, please hear me. And it sounds like just words we say. You've heard it over and over again. But it's still the truth. That book has the answer for you. And at the very least, that book has the comfort that you need. Job didn't have it. He stayed patient. If he could do that, we should remain patient as well. This world needs to see see in us a patience, a comfort, a peace in spite of the difficulties around us. Our patient response to our trials is one of the best ways to show the difference that Jesus Christ can make in the life of somebody who has trusted him. Job is now silent. He's made his next plea and it's finished. And now we move to chapter 11. The third of Job's friends, Zophar, takes his turn at responding to Job. Now, Zophar is probably the youngest of the three friends and probably the least influential of those three. And that's probably why he's speaking last. And what that means is Zophar has had all this time to listen to Job and to the other two friends and take it all in and reflect on what's being said and what the real issues are involved here and then ask for a call to reason instead of attacking Job. But instead, Zophar surges ahead with great intensity, sharing the same thesis that the other two have already expressed. And it seems as though his thought is, if the other two have been hard, he's going to be harder. 
Rather than see for God's wisdom on what he's going to say, he does exactly what the others have already done. He takes God's wisdom out of context and uses that wisdom as a weapon against Job. And just as the others, Zophar has become a tool in the hand of Satan to wear Job down even further and to get him to curse God, which is exactly what Satan wants Job to do. And Zophar, just as the others, is one more example of how not to help a brother or sister who's going through a trial. Now, in verses 1 through 6, we have Zophar's perverse attack. Zophar's perverse attack. And he opens by accepting Job's response as a challenge. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then answered Zophar the Damathite and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Zophar really possesses the gift of mercy, doesn't he, there? He calls Job a liar and a mocker. Look at verse 3. Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, should no man make thee ashamed? He says, Job, you're full of hot air. I can't let you get away with this. You're a liar and a mocker. Here's a man going through the worst trial any person ever gone through. And his friend comes along and says, you know what you are? You're full of hot air and you're a liar and you're mocking God. What mercy he's showing to Job at this time. The reality is, Zophar is the one who's lying. Look at verse 4. He says, for thou hast said, speaking of what Job said, for thou hast said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. Job never said that. Job never said any such thing. Job has confessed his sin nature. He simply refuses to admit that there's some secret sin in his life that's brought all this about. You see, here's the problem. And Tim touched upon it this morning at 930. The problem is, Zophar has not been listening. Zophar has been forming his own conclusions while Job was talking. And as a result, Zophar has violated one of the cardinal rules to follow when we try to help somebody who's in need. Zophar only wants to hear what he wants to hear. Only those things that support what he already believes. Now, Solomon made several comments about this in the book of Proverbs. Let me read them to you this morning. Proverbs 10.19, Solomon says this, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. If I could paraphrase Solomon and be much cruder about it, uh, Solomon says, shut up and listen. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Proverbs 15.28, The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. In uh, Proverbs 17:28, even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. <laughs> There's some wisdom in this book, I'll tell you, folks. That what Solomon says there. If you just keep your mouth shut, you're going to look a whole lot smarter. <laughs> Once you start talking, uh, you confuse everybody. He says, even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Proverbs 18:13, he that answereth a matter before he heareth it. It is folly and shame unto him. He that answers a matter before he heareth it. Before you hear what the matter is, I've already got an answer. That's Zophar. That's exactly what Zophar is doing. You see, folks, we can have all the knowledge in the world. What we also need to do when somebody is struggling, what they need is a listening ear and the wisdom to know when to speak and when to stay quiet. And as Tim said this morning, you're going to be quiet a whole lot more than you're going to speak if you're going to try and help somebody. And to speak without listening only adds to the misery of that person that we're trying to help. And that's exactly what Zophar does here. Look at verse 5. He said, but oh, that God would speak, 
and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee a less than thy iniquity deserveth. Zophar says this, Job, in spite of all that you suffered, you're really getting less than you deserve. You deserve a whole lot more than what you're getting. Now, folks, technically, that's true. In fact, I have that verse circled in my Bible because the last phrase there is true. God exacteth of thee less than thy iniquity deserveth. That's true. We get less than we deserve. We all get less than we deserve. I find it interesting when I hear some lost person say, I only want what's coming to me. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't want what's coming to you. Uh, we deserve hell because of our sin. That's what's coming to us without Jesus Christ. Now, what God has done, he gave us a way around that, a way to avoid that place and get what we really don't deserve and could never deserve. Uh, by the way, believers, just don't ever get it in your mind that you deserve heaven or that you deserve salvation. <laughs> you don't deserve, I don't deserve any of it. Neither do you. Amen. That's God's mercy and that's God's grace. So what, what Zophar says there technically is true. That is a true doctrine. But the fact is, it just doesn't apply to Job in this particular case. It doesn't apply to him the way Zophar is speaking of it. Uh, Job is, has just lost everything. He has lost everything on earth that mattered to him. And now Zophar says to him, you're really getting less than you deserve. <laughs> All that has happened to him, that is in no way helpful to Job whatsoever. And to say to somebody, and this just drives me crazy, when somebody's going through a difficulty, well, it could be worse. How is that helpful? I know it could be worse. But it's bad right now. What I'm going through at this moment is what I'm struggling with. It doesn't help me to know that it could be worse. That does no help whatsoever. And that's basically what uh, Zophar is saying to Job. Now, I want you to see Zophar's probing philosophy in verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, Zophar considers the Almighty God. Look at verse 7. He says that, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou uh, find out the Almighty under perfection? Now, he asked two philosophical questions here, two of life's greatest philosophical questions. The first in verse 7, look at it again. Canst thou by searching find out God? What he's saying to Job is this, Job, do you really think that you could, you're going to find God by looking for him? And that question embodies the belief of most in the world philosophical crowd. They propose the idea that it is really impossible to truly know God. They say you really can't know him. They say he's too immense, that he's too far away, that none of us can ever really find him because we're simply human and it can't happen. Now, that all may sound like a, a place to work from, except for Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6, where God says through Isaiah, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. That verse says God can be found and God wants us to seek him. And the promise is, if we'll do that, God will reveal himself to us. God can be found by, having, by searching him out. God has made himself available to anybody who will seek for him. Look at the last part of verse 7. Canst thou find out the Almighty under perfection? The implication is God is too great and God is too perfect to ever be known by man. And therefore, the great thinkers of our day, and I put that in quotes, obviously, <laughs> the great thinker of, thinkers of our day won't even call him God. They call him the supreme being or the higher power or some other phrase they put on him. And what they imply is there's no way in the world to know this ultimate power. You simply can't know him. Now, I believe in those words as they pro pro uh, propose that there is an uh, uh, ulterior motive. Here's what I think they think. 
if God can't be known, then I can't follow him. If I can't find him, how can I follow him? I can't follow a leader that I can't find. And therefore, if God can't be known, nobody is required to follow him. If he's too great to be known, it's impossible to abide by whatever he might want us to do. So what they do in that statement really is reject the authority of God. And, of course, that's always the issue, folks. The issue is always authority. That's what it always is. Since God is unknowable, they place themselves in the position of authority instead, and then their eyes, ideas rather, are just as good as anybody else's. So let me pop a hole in that balloon this morning. We can know God. We can know God. He has revealed himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ said in John 14, 9, He that hath seen me, what? Hath seen the Father. Jesus Christ says, If you've seen me, I've revealed God to you. He can be known through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can know the deep things of God also as he reveals them to us through his spirit. Uh, Just like every unsaved philosopher, Zophar is attempting here to be philosophical, and he makes two statements that are totally untrue. If you hear of anybody, folks, who calls themselves a philosopher and does not have the word of God at the base of it, what they're going to say is false. (laughs) Just reject it automatically. Don't even listen to another word of it. Because nothing is true outside of what comes from the word of God. We can know God. We can know what God wants us to do. God has made us so that we those things have been revealed to us. And God has made it clear all those things that he wants us to know. And then in verse 8, and going down through, through verse 11, Zophar considers the dimensions of the infinite. Now, Zophar thinks he's built a foundation here. And now he's going to proceed to show just how high and unsearchable God's perfection really is. Look at verse 8. I'll start with verse 7 to get the context. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty under perfection? Speaking of his perfection now, it is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Zophar gives four dimensions of God's creation. He talks about height and depth and length and breadth. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. I find it fascinating. Humans work from three dimensions. God works from four dimensions. God makes everything different. God does everything differently than what man does. And Zophar's point here is that God is unknowable, and he sees the use of the vastness of creation to prove his point. But even as he does that, he takes another jab at Job. Look at verse 10. If he cut off and shut up, or gather together, then who can hinder him? For he knoweth vain men, he seeth wickedness also, will he not then consider it? The point of the argument, Job, you can't know God, you, know, you also can't fool God. God knows all about your sin, God knows all about your wickedness, he knows you're a vain man, he knows just how wicked you really are, Job. Stop trying to fool God. That's Zophar's comfort to Job during his time of difficulty. That's Job's words of comfort. (laughs) Zophar's words of comfort, rather, during Job's difficulty. Job, just stop trying to fool God. Stop trying to get God to think otherwise than what you really are. And then look at verse 12. For vain man, there he is again, for vain man would be wise, though man be born like a wild ass's colt. Zophar considers here the wild ass's colt, and that's what he compares Job to, a vain man like a wild ass's colt. Now, I want to stop here and look at this just for a second. When you see those words like or as in Scripture, be very, very aware of them. 
What God does with those words is he makes a comparison of truth. He's trying to teach us some truth by some picture that he's giving to us. He's comparing the known to the unknown. Here God compares an unsafe person, that vain man that he talks about there. He compares that vain person to a wild ass's colt. Now, why would God do that? Why would God compare a donkey's colt to man's sinful state of birth? Well, I think the answer is found if we look back to the book of Exodus. I'm going to have you stop, hold your hand there in Job, if you would, and go back to Exodus chapter 13, rather. In chapter, uh, verses 11 and 12, God begins to tell the people to set apart the firstborn of every creature. And there are only two exceptions to this rule, two creatures that had to be redeemed to be acceptable unto the Lord. They couldn't simply be set aside. They had to be redeemed first. And that was the firstborn of the man and the firstborn of the donkey. Look at chapter 13 of Exodus in verse 13. It says, there, And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem <laughs> with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among the, thy children thou shalt redeem. The donkey had to be redeemed, and the man had to be redeemed. That firstling of an ass is like a type of a lost person. Every person born onto this earth has something wrong with them. And it started with their birth. And according to chapter 13 and 13 of the book of Exodus, a person must be redeemed, how? <laughs> by the blood of a lamb. By the blood of a lamb. It was not an accident that Jesus Christ rode in Jerusalem on the colt of an ass that day. It was by God's design. That colt of that donkey is a type of a lost person. And that donkey was tamed by the Lord Jesus Christ so he could ride into him on town, into town that day. Jesus Christ tamed that donkey and rode him into town. It's a clear message. The only way to have a person have that lost nature tamed is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. No other remedy for it. Mark chapter 11, verse 2, when Jesus Christ, before he rode into town on that donkey, we are told that donkey was tied up. And Jesus Christ instructed his disciples to go and loose him and bring him to Jesus. You see, people without Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 8 and verse 34, are bound by sin. And the only way to loose them is through Jesus Christ. John eight thirty six. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. So the disciples go to get that colt. And when they found that colt, the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 11 and verse 4, they found that colt tied by the door without a place where two ways met. They found that unsaved man at the place where two ways met outside the door. John chapter 10, Jesus Christ says, I'm the door to salvation. The only entrance to fellowship with the Father is through Jesus Christ. And that's where they found this donkey the disciples that day. And they found that donkey where two ways met. You know the verses, Mark chapter, or Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Two roads a person can follow. Two roads a lost person can follow. The broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. Every person on earth, I don't care who they are, I don't care where they are, they come to a point in their lives, they've got to decide which road they're going to follow, which route they're going to take. Every lost person who wants to enter heaven takes the narrow road by trusting the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as payment for their sin. Otherwise, they take the broad road and pay for that sin themselves. Look at Mark, Exodus 13, 13 again. Look at that verse. It says there, if that lamb's blood was not shed for that donkey, what happens? The donkey's neck is broken. Either the lamb pays or the donkey pays. But somebody's going to pay. 
There's got to be a payment made for that sin. Either the blood of the lamb pays for that sin or the donkey pays for that price themselves. Either Jesus Christ pays the price or the individual chooses to make that pay that price themselves. Either Jesus Christ tames the nature of that lost person or that sinful nature goes untamed and the end of that person is eternal death. Can I just stop and say something a minute? That's an amazing book. That book wasn't put together by some uh, uh, human writer. God used the human writer, but that book was put together by God himself. How would you find truth like Jesus Christ taking a donkey and riding that donkey into Jerusalem as the picture of every lost person you know? (laughs) It's an amazing book. Don't let him change it. Don't let him mess with it. Just hold on to the book you've got. (laughs) If you mess with it, you're going to mess something up that God wanted you to see. Zophar had no idea what he was saying that day. He had no idea the significance of it. But you've got a book this morning where every word, every word is important. Every word. Every word. No word is in that book. I can't, you won't convince me otherwise. You can try the rest of your life. You'll never convince me otherwise. No word in that book was put there by accident. Every word is there because God wanted it there. When God put something into that book, he put it there for a reason. There is a message in that book that all of creation needs to hear. And the wise choice, I believe, simply let the book say what it says. Let it say what it says. The wise choice, search out the meaning of the words of this book so God can reveal his truth to us. And that truth will be great and that truth will be wonderful for us. And regardless of what the Christian scholarship of today says, there's never a reason to change what the Word of God says. Read it, study it, believe it. That's all you've got to do. Don't change it. Just read it and study it and believe it. And if we will do just that, God is guaranteed to us. He will show us great and mighty things which we know not. Verse 13 through 20. We see Zophar's pat answer. He thinks he has correctly assessed Job's problem. And now he has some words of advice for Job. Look at verses 13 and 14. If thou wilt, if thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. What's he tell Job? Job, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart. Submit to God. Open yourself up to whatever God wants you to do. Now, Zophar has been wrong on many levels in what he's told Job so far. What he says here is good advice because that is the attitude that we all should have toward God. There's other places in Scripture that say the exact same thing. That's the attitude we're encouraging our church to embrace this year in 2024, surrendering all to Jesus so he can use us the way he wants to use us. So he can make us more like him and do through us what he desires to do. So nothing wrong with those words. But then in verse 14, he adds something. He says, Job, let go of your sin. Let go of your sin. These guys just will not give up. They are convinced that sin is what has brought God's judgment upon Job, and they keep saying it over and over and over. And then in verses 15 and 16, he tells Job to purge his spots. Prepare your heart, Job, and then purge your spots. Look at verse 15. For then shalt thou lift up thine face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as waters that pass away. Again, they're convinced that Job has sin, and therefore, he says, cleanse this spot that you have on you. That word spot in Scripture is often a reference to sin. In the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to put a spot on his followers. He's going to mark them with a spot. Job chapter 6 tells us, or Job 6 rather, tells us we are to hate the garment that has been spotted by the flesh. 
Ephesians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, we are given instructions to the, the Jews are given instructions on how to deal with leprosy, a spot of leprosy, a type of sin in Scripture. Jesus Christ seeks a bride in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27, and he wants that bride without spot or wrinkle. I want to ask you a question this morning, believer, as we just pause here for a moment. We're going to finish this up in just a second. Let me ask you a question. Are you unspotted from the world? Are you unspotted from the world? As you look at your life, is there any spot of the world on you? Are the marks of sin of the world on you anywhere? You see, God wants a pure people. God wants a people without spot. That's what he's seeking in his bride. God wants people who do not allow the stain of sin to affect their lives or their testimonies. And if it does, it reduces our effectiveness in serving Jesus Christ the way he wants us to. I think it's good for us every morning to look at our lives and say, okay, where am I spotted this morning? Let me find my spots. And let me cleanse those spots by confessing to God. And let me make a resolve to forsake those things and not do them again so that spot no longer appears. Unspotted from the world. Zophar tells Job, you've got spots. You need to cleanse those spots. So those words are good. Those words are, are, are important for us. They just don't apply to Job at this particular point in time. Finally, in verses 17 through 20, he tells Job, Zophar tells Job to possess the blessing. Prepare your heart, purge the spots, possess the blessing. Uh, in reality, these verses actually reflect the conditions at the time of the second coming. Again, I want to remind you, Job is a picture of Israel during the time of the tribulation. And God's message to them during that time is the same as what's expressed here. If they'll get right with God, God's judgment will end and the world will move into a time of peace and prosperity. Look at verse 17. He said, And thine age shall be clearer than the noonday. Thou shalt shine forth and thou shalt be as the morning. God says through Zophar that anybody who chooses to follow what the Lord requires of them shall shine like, shine like the morning sun. Matthew 13:43 Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. If we want the blessing of God upon our lives, God's ultimate blessing comes from those who will be faithful to him, faithful to him, faithful to him no matter what the cost. It's easy to be faithful when things are going well. God wants you to be faithful no matter what's going on in your life. Faithful no matter what the cost. Verse 17 and 18, verse 18 and 19, look at them. And thou shalt be secure, because there is hope. Yea, thou shalt dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety. Also thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. Now again, Zophar's words go beyond the application to Job. These are the conditions that God promises to his people during his earthly millennial reign here on earth. But I want you to notice the promise of verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. What's he saying there? Well, God speaking through for Zophar says this. All those who reject the Lord and live after their own ways, rather than after God's ways, here's the promise. I'm going to do these things. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to fail. You'll not escape. You'll have no hope. God makes that promise. Uh, verse 20 refers to the Antichrist as well as to every wicked person who's ever lived on this earth. Eventually, the eyes of every wicked person will be darkened. God will judge them, and their ultimate end will be eternity of darkness, spiritual darkness, and physical darkness. I find God to be very fair. And I know mankind doesn't like to hear this, but he's very fair. If a man chooses to live in darkness all through this life, 
Is that the choice they've made? God says, okay, I'll give you your wish. I'll put you in a place of darkness for all of eternity. If you want to live in darkness, I'll give you darkness. And so he puts them into a place where they'll never see light ever again. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in a place where you'll never see any light again? No light at all? I've been in those places where, you know, where you can't see your hand in front of your face, and it's kind of an eerie feeling. Imagine spending eternity in a place of eternal, absolute, total darkness. If you choose to live in darkness here, God says, I'll let you live in darkness for all of eternity. But I'll tell you what I like in this verse. I like the difference that is shown between the saved and the lost. Because you see, folks, when the righteous die, their hope lives on. When the wicked die, their hope disappears. Notice the last part of verse 20 again. It says, they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. Proverbs 11:7. when a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. I'm sure you've talked to them. I've talked to lost people, and they tell me what they're going to do when they get to hell. They talk about how they're going to be with all their friends. All the parties they're going to have, all the drinking they're going to do, all these things they're going to participate in when they're in hell. Folks, listen to me. There's no hope in hell. There's no hope in hell. When you get to that place, you won't. But those who get to that place, they're not going to do any of those things. When they get there, there's no hope of ever getting out. It's solid. It's finished. They talk about the parties. No parties. No enjoyment. Total darkness. Absolute heat. No fellowship with God for all of eternity. And that is the only thing a lost person has to look forward to. They have only to look forward to the judgment of God. They'll stand before him. He'll decree their punishment on them. And because they've not trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, they will go to a place where there is no hope whatsoever. No hope in this life. No hope for all of eternity. One decision changes all that. Thank God for that. One choice gives everlasting hope. That's a choice you and I have made to make Jesus Christ our Savior. Once we allow him to pay our sin for us, we become his child. And every blessing that God has, he gives to us. Everything at his disposal, he gives to his children in this life and for all of eternity. Hope comes through Jesus Christ. Believer, I'm going to ask you a stupid question this morning. I'm good at that. (laughs) Stupidity is my middle name. Aren't you glad you're saved today? (laughs) What a blessing it is to know Jesus Christ as Savior. What a blessing to know I have hope that goes beyond this grave. I praise God that when we laid my dad in the ground there a few months ago, we put him into that ground. I didn't worry a thing about him whatsoever. (laughs) He had hope of Jesus Christ. He's in heaven right now. Celebrating his salvation with my mom right now. And every loved one you know who is in heaven today, there is hope beyond this grave for those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Don't ever lose the joy of your salvation, folks. Rejoice in it. Enjoy it no matter what the circumstances, folks. Enjoy your salvation as much as you possibly can. And then surrender everything to him to reach this lost world. Because there are people out there right now, you're going to cross paths them before you leave, before you get home today. Who don't have that hope. You've got it. You've got it. Let them know of the hope that is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. A hope that never ends. Eternal hope through the Son of God. Praise God for it. Let's pray.